When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. Tom Vitor. On today's show, we will be joined by the host of Cricket Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. And then later, we're going to talk to uh, immigrant rights activist, Jalissa Arce. Uh, she will be right here in studio. She's going to join us. Studio is the best. Studio is the best. Okay. We want to talk about Charlottesville today and first set up the context of what happened. In February of this year, the Charlottesville City Council voted to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee after a local high school student organized a petition that received hundreds of signatures from the city's residents. They also renamed Lee Park Emancipation Park. Because of this, a group of white supremacists and neo-Nazis from all over the country decided to hold a protest in Charlottesville this weekend on Saturday. They brought Confederate flags, they brought Nazi symbols, torches, and weapons, some military-grade They chanted racial epithets and gay epithets and things like, Jews will not replace us. And one of them, a neo-Nazi, committed an act of domestic terrorism by ramming a crowd of protesters with his car, injuring at least 19 and killing one, a 32-year-old woman named Heather Heyer. On Sunday, the Department of Justice announced it was opening a civil rights investigation into the attack. Tommy Lovett, before we get to Trump and have to start talking about him, what were some of your first reactions as you saw this unfold on Saturday? I sort of found myself not feeling that surprised. I just, this felt like a culmination of a lot of different forces that had been roiling under the surface. Um, you know, we'd seen these protests around Confederate monuments. We'd seen the the wink and the nod from the Bannons of the world to these elements that were feeling more and more empowered. We've seen just, I mean, look, you can look across the kind of fringes of the right and all the elements of this are there. You see a more radical version of the NRA emerging. You see the rise of people like Alex Jones becoming more and more prominent. You see the kind of racist websites like Breitbart giving people license to say things and do things. And I don't know, I guess I I, I saw a lot of people that, that couldn't believe it was happening and not to say that I'm some prescient person, but it just seemed like that, of course, this is a tinderbox. Of course, this kind of forces will emerge when you have a president who very clearly chooses to treat white nationalism, white supremacy with kid gloves. Like it's the most dangerous force in American history is violent racism with tacit permission from the government. Tommy. So, I mean, uh, stipulate that like on a personal level, and this is not about me, I'm a, a white Christian male, I'm the least overtly threatened by any of these groups of any sort of cohort in the United States, but my little sister lives in Charlottesville, and it's she's the same age of the woman who was killed, and so getting a call from your sister who's scared shitless because Nazis and Klansmen overran her town is a really frightening, terrible thing. I think that it is in some ways it's unsurprising because these same horrible people have been doing these sorts of rallies for a long time. Um, I think it is hopefully a wake-up call because 
I think we've we've dealt with a lot of euphemisms since the Trump election. We've talked about the alt right. We've talked about white nationalists. Uh, these are white supremacists. They're Nazis. Um, I think a lot of my instinct sometimes is to mock them and to ridicule them because you know I can't do anything more overt. But I think we have to make sure we don't do that anymore. We have to take them deadly seriously because. Um, these are people who are committing acts of terrorism. They're murdering people in the streets. It's not funny. It, it is not a joke. It is like deadly serious and dangerous and horribly frightening for a lot of people in this country who, you know, witness this shit. Yeah. So the president of the United States responded to the terrorist attack by saying that he, quote, condemned hatred, bigotry and violence on many sides. And later in the statement said that we should, quote, cherish our history. As the New York Times noted, he is the only national political figure of either party to spread the blame on both sides. I mean, to me, the only thing you need to know about Trump's remarks is what the country's largest white supremacist media outlet said in response, which is, quote, he didn't attack us, refused to answer a question about white nationalists supporting him, no condemnation at all. When asked to condemn, he just walked out of the room. Really, really good. God bless him. Yeah, it it is so easy to condemn violence, terrorism, Nazis, and Klansmen. Those are no-brainers. The fact that they... Like start going back to 2015 when he wouldn't condemn David Duke. And then that happened again throughout the campaign. The fact that he needs to be pulled kicking and screaming to say anything negative about this people says everything you need to know. I am so sick of these people that are like expressing disappointment or concern or really wish he would be more forceful. He made a choice. He is choosing not to condemn these people, to send a message to someone, to send a message about his own arrogance and his own sense of grievance that he's attacked by some fictitious fucking group on the left. And this weekend, I think, was a breaking point, I hope, for a lot of people to because you saw like Ted Cruz coming out and very forcefully condemning what happened. You saw Orrin Hatch saying my brother didn't die fighting the Nazis for this to happen on our streets. So like our president is on an island in a way that he has never been for his entire administration and he can't fix it now. He he yeah. made a choice. And let me like what Ted Cruz and all them said like that that's the least it's literally the least you can say and do. Yep. <laughs> to condemn this stuff. It is those, and then he and then Donald Trump wasn't even able to do that. Yeah, and, and and it's also not surprising. You know, you see people like hoping he'll do more and, and he doesn't want to do more. He, it's not and it's not a and it's not an accident and it flows directly from the way that he's run this campaign from the beginning. It starts with his campaign against the Central Park Five. It's his the racist policies of Trump's father and then Trump's company uh, on on housing. It continues with him becoming a birther and it continues now in the White House with Bannon running around, having himself said that Bart Bart was a platform for the alt-right. And so, of course, he's going to do as little as possible. Uh, they have made a choice that this in some way helps them politically, that that all these denunciations come from people he never had. And, and that sending this quiet signal to the worst elements of our country will help him politically in ways I don't fully understand. The Republicans sort of denouncing this... It's great that they're doing that, and it's great that they're calling it for what it is. As John said, it's the least they can do. Many of them continue to support Donald Trump. Many of them supported him, even though he was a birther. Many of these senators, with their strong statements, also voted to put a birther on the federal court. So 
denunciations are lovely, but I don't really have a real wonderful point. I'm just sort of thinking about the ways in which the conservative movement has either embraced or refused to reject the elements that they viewed as necessary to their success, the stoking of racial grievance that has gone on for decades, that went on under Nixon and Reagan, that continued with the Willie Horton ad, that continues to this day with the way in which the NRA puts out videos, basically... The NRA has just basically become like a government paramilitary organization and not uh, have nothing to do with gun rights. Right, you know, threatening anymore. the New York Times, but of course having nothing to say about Philando Castile. So, you know, this is a symptom of a larger problem. And, and the thing is, you know, people always say, you know, Donald Trump isn't the disease, he's a symptom of the disease, but it's the symptoms that kill you. Jamel Bowie wrote an important piece in Slate about the absence of his, his inability to condemn... These groups on Saturday was incredibly telling, but he also goes out on the stump and uses this vivid language all the time to describe immigrant on citizen violence and murder. He talks about gang members slicing up and torturing young girls. It is absolutely designed to scare people, to divide communities. This was the entire thrust of his convention speech. His biggest moment on the world stage was about scaring the hell out of people in the name of law and order. And like, yet he cannot come down and, and... talk about law and order in the context of, you know, putting terrorist Nazis in jail. Terrorists who mowed down innocent people, which is deserves all the same vivid language and treatment. But of course, you could never muster yeah. it. Absolutely. Look, I think so. A- as we're recording this uh, on Monday morning, the president is, I think, delivering statements where he is supposed to, supposed to say racism is evil and actually call out these groups by name and whatever. Fine. It's too fucking late. It doesn't matter. We saw his true. We saw who he is on Saturday. I think there is a bit of a consequence of, you know, the, a lot of the media is covering this as, a, oh, he missed his moment, right? Like, he he whiffed on this. He, he wasn't he, he wasn't presidential. He, a real leader would do X and Y and Z. And all of that is true. But I think the consequence of treating it like theater <coughs> criticism, which I don't think people do intentionally, but it just sort of happens with the way we cover things, is Trump makes a statement this afternoon. A lot of people say, well... He missed a moment. That's a stain on his presidency. But, you know, tune in for the next episode of the worst reality show in America <laughs> when, you know, last week we're on the brink of nuclear war with North Korea. This week we have Nazis running through the streets. And next week, Trump tweets something else. You know, like, I don't think we move on from this. You know, like, I, I like this is just just thinking about what you were just saying about all the things he did uh, that were racist throughout his career, right? Like, he started his presidential campaign talking about how Mexicans are rapists and Barack Obama is an African-born imposter, right? Like, like he talked about a, a judge couldn't be fair because he was Mexican. I mean, th- this man is racist. He's a racist. And he is the president of the United States. And that doesn't, I don't care what he does, I don't care what moves he makes, I don't care what he says, I don't care what strategy he engages in, it doesn't change it. From now until the day he leaves office, it does not change it. Yeah. So they're going to try to clean it up today. Of course, the first thing that Trump did this morning was, you know, (laughs) Kenneth Frazier, who's the CEO of Merck Pharmaceutical, resigned from the president's manufacturing council over Trump's refusal to condemn white supremacists, and Trump immediately tweets an attack at him. In his response to this individual leaving his council, which, by the way, if you are still on one of these advisory councils and you're a business leader, you should leave right now. There's major CEOs, the CEO of Boeing, 
Pepsi, get off the councils. It is adding no value to the country or to you as an individual, and it is damaging your reputation and your company's reputation this very moment. Don't wait for your fucking comms meeting. Don't wait for your like strategist that you're paying a huge retainer <laughs> to. Don't wait for the dumb yeah. advice. Just be a human being. Look at this. You know it's wrong. Just make the move. Yeah, you're Don't pay- wait for the fucking shareholders. Just get off the fucking You're paying council. somebody 15 grand a month to tell you that actually you can stay or not stay. So yeah. that who's going to tell you, you, you look, the bottom line is like people will understand why you stay and they'll understand why you won't stay. Should we do consultant speak? Yeah. Look, the bo- look, this is a tinderbox. Obviously, this is something that could blow over. Uh, there's a lot of people hoping that you'd step off and obviously there's some benefits to doing that, but I think you have a fair case to make about your value to the committee. Get so, off the fucking committees! There we go. So, <laughs> the most charitable example for Trump's reaction to being told what to say about any issue is that he views every problem through the prism of his own grievance and his own feeling that he's being treated unfairly or whatever. That means the best case scenario here is that he is a selfish, self-absorbed, myopic, awful person and not a horrible racist. I think it's probably a, a big mix of both. There's obviously racism. He's also a megalomaniac. And when he's told that he did something wrong, he refuses to fix that anyway. No. And so, you know, we're not watching the statement today, but I am sure the statement today will be through gritted teeth and the absolute least he can do. Well, and he'll talk about how annoyed he is about having to give it. Well, you, and you saw, like, Trump's number one apologist, Mike Pence, say, you know, <laughs> boy, he really wished the media would focus uh, as much of its time condemning the hateful acts as they do the president because political reporters in Washington are supposed to cover events on the ground in, in Charlottesville and not the president who they cover. It's the dumbest, most pathetic, self-serving spin. And you're also seeing this garbage from Fox and Friends and Fox and right-wing commenters who are just spinning like pathetic tops to try to defend this man, no matter how hypocritical it is, no matter how stupid it is the, on a policy level. Like I, I don't know if you guys saw Jake Tapp interview with Tom Bossert, who is the president's Homeland Security Advisor. But he tried to claim that Trump didn't name the groups because he didn't want to dignify them, which, like, let's attack this level of stupid from a couple different directions. First of all, Trump's sole criticism of Barack Obama's ISIS policy is that he wouldn't name radical Islamic groups, right? So on that level, it's really stupid. Second, he does events about ISIS. He does events about MS-13. He names names all the time. This is not about dignity. This is about... The fact that Nazis and Klansmen beat people with clubs on the streets and killed a woman with a car. And he can't condemn that by name. It is um, sad. It's, it's pathetic. It's, it's enraging. And it's exact. And it's, not, des- it's by design. It's by design. Which is the, the worst part. It is not a surprise. These Republicans hoping he'll do something else are lying to us and they're lying to themselves. You know, this is a person. Donald Trump is Donald Trump. He is the same dotty old racist that he was the day he took the oath. And those of us who said that this that he was a threat to the country, that he was incompetent and dangerous and racist have been proven right at every turn. And people like Paul Ryan and the rest of them that did as little as possible to stop it, who embraced him when necessary to support their agenda, have continued to sell out their country and they will do as little as possible now. And it is their great and permanent moral shame. So quick update. He's, he's saying things like no matter the color of our skin, we all salute the same flag. Uh, he, he's talking about hatred, bigotry, and violence, uh, apparently condemning them under pressure. So, you know, this is him getting around to doing the bare minimum. Uh, and he, he said, KKK and you Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups are repugnant. 
Sure. David Duke was out there saying they were there to fulfill the Trump agenda legacy. I forget the exact word he, he used. Not. So you have an obligation to condemn him. But this exactly this like this is why love it. You pointed this out. All the focus on pleading him to say the right thing, imploring him to say the right thing. It just it sort of misses the mark, right? Like he had he had one moment to say the right thing, and that was as soon as this happened. Absolutely, and yeah. that revealed his true self. And his decision to not do it right away to say many sides it will not be lost on his supporters that it took him three days to say this. Of course not. They will say and know they will know correctly that he said what he wanted to say, and then under pressure as a bomb to the rest of the country, which doesn't agree with them, this collection of white nationalists and the president, uh, that, you know, he said what he had to say, but we all know where he really, where his um, heart lies. Friend of the pod, our, uh, our former colleague, Ben Rhodes, was talking about this on ABC News. There are these like crucible moments when you're president. Uh, there was Charleston for Barack Obama. There was 9-11 with George W. Bush. Uh, there's Oklahoma City with President Clinton. When you are called on by the nation to go out and be the head of state and to unify people and to speak in terms that can help heal wounds and bring people together and he chose to do the absolute opposite he abdicated his moral authority as president of the united states and that will be a major piece of his legacy and you know what it's he didn't abdicate his moral authority he never had it he will never have it he is a pretend president and the greatest mistake we've ever made and don't look to him don't expect anything from him work around him that's just how it is i do try to think about what republican voters will see and read and hear over the next couple of days. And, you know, it's not as obvious as them turning on their TVs or opening up newspapers and saying, you know, no, 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 the white nationalists, the white supremacists are good, right? It's going to be a little more subtle than that. They're going to turn on Fox. And like you said, Tommy, Fox is going to basically take the line that Mike Pence took, which is this is a media creation. The media cares more about what Donald Trump did or didn't say than talking about the issue at hand. They're going to do, as we've already seen, the false equivalents, the gross false equivalents, which, well, there's there's mobs on the left, too. There's violence on the left. Some people are saying alt-left and alt-right, right. as if there's like, as he, if, you know, the people who were there to oppose Nazis and white supremacists are somehow equivalent to right. the Nazis and white supremacists. Which is literally impossible. Unless they had murdered someone, there is no equivalence to be drawn, period. But, I mean, and the other, to your point about Fox, like, what's happening is these views, these Nazi views, these white supremacist views are being laundered through the prism of white equality. We just want to get back to where affirmative action isn't giving others a leg up on us. And it is it is this bullshit, manufactured, right-wing Fox News grievance that is being uh, regurgitated by the president of the United States. And it is selling this idea that, you know, something has been taken away from white people and they need to get it back, which is why Make America Great Again and the NRA videos that you guys were talking about earlier are particularly dangerous because it's fomenting this uprising and this this grievance that is being sold in this media. It's And, you know, they, these guys all want to, f to act as though their hands aren't dirty because they don't say the second sentence. They just say the first sentence. You know, the NRA just says the first sentence, right? They put out the incitement. They put out the grievance. But they don't say what to do with it, right? They don't say the next thing you're supposed to do. So it's, why is it on them? But, you know, these people are playing with fire every day. The, you know, Fox News, that, that group of people on Fox and Friends, the, the what Sean Hannity does every night, these people are playing with incredibly dangerous forces, and they are sending a powerful message to people. Look, it is not a coincidence that we are seeing white nationalists on the street during the Trump presidency. It is it is a natural 
result. When you hear uh, the the governor of Virginia or the mayor of Charlottesville say that the people who were there uh, with these Nazi groups were better armed than the police forces, you're right. That's the second half of that sentence. It's go buy weapons, arm yourself, be prepared. And that was displayed in a very frightening way this weekend. There were weapons caches found around town, which uh, uh, Governor McAuliffe says to DeRay, and we'll talk to him more about that. Sarah Jones in the New Republic was talking about how the Republican Party in general bears responsibility here. Um, She pointed out that in May, the North Carolina House of Representatives passed a bill that would legally protect drivers who run over protesters in the streets. Shocking. Um, We've seen Corey Stewart, who ran against Ed Gillespie for uh, the GOP nomination for governor in Virginia. He lost that nomination narrowly after defending the Robert E. Lee statue uh, that white supremacists gathered to defend on Saturday. He's now running as an independent. So I I don't know if you guys saw, there was a picture of, um, love it, your friend Dirty Dean Heller. He was uh, in a picture with one of the people that was at the rally. And everyone said, oh, well, Dean Heller didn't know this person. That's not the point. The point was this kid was the head of the college Republicans at the University of Nevada in Reno. So Dean Heller aside, the fact that the head of the college Republicans at this university ended up at this rally, there is, I think, Republicans need to face that there is a broader racist rot at the center of their party and there has been for a long time. Yeah. These are people that are in our communities. They are. They have jobs. They are part of local Republican committees. They are part of the community. These are like... It is, I think, a false comfort to say, oh, these are the dregs of our society. These are the worst people. And plenty of them are. Of course, plenty of them are. Plenty of them, these are just aggrieved, broken, angry losers. But some of them are college students and business owners and others, It's as it has always been. As it was with the, as it was for the KKK. Of course. Yep. yep. And, and that's why, yeah, and that's why it's so important to take them deadly seriously. And But, and just, but talking about these monuments for a minute, like the, the Charlottesville statue went up in 1924, but a lot of these Confederate monuments were put up in support of Jim Crow around when the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. They were explicit rejections of equality and a defense of slavery. And I think a lot of times this all gets couched in this bullshit spin of of history uh, and heritage and these gross euphemisms. We got to call this stuff out for what it is. If you're if you if you can't put yourself in the shoes of an African American kid having to walk by Robert E. Lee's statue and, and, and what that would mean to you and what that says to you about what what that individual wanted for your future. You have an empathy problem that is that is deep and, and scary and needs to be fixed. If you want to read a speech from a real leader about this issue, you should go back and read uh, Mitch Landrieu's speech. Yeah. Yeah. When they took the statue down in uh, in New Orleans. And I will say I mentioned and, and Brian Boitler wrote a piece about this today, too. But I think the most the, the most chilling words in Trump's statement was at the end when he said, we must all cherish our history. Yeah. Which you know, Trump's too much of a fucking idiot to probably know what that means. Mm-hmm. But Stephen Miller, Stephen mm-hmm. Bannon, Steve Miller, Stephen Miller, or Stephen Bannon, or one of them wrote that line, and that is a fucking defense of the statue. Yep, it's he a- wasn't. He wasn't just saying many sides. He was. That was implicitly taking a side. Can I make one other point? If you're on TV comparing Black Lives Matter to what happened over the weekend, you are a moron. You need to stop what you're doing and think for a second about the genesis of that group, because it's a group that simply asked uh, that we focus on the fact that African-Americans were getting shot in the streets at a massively disproportionate rate than whites or, or other races Innocent in this African-Americans. country. Innocent African-Americans. Innocent kids were getting shot by cops. 
It is a movement to try to stop that killing from happening. There is no comparison. No this comparison. is a movement to stop a racist statue from being taken down. So that's the that's the difference. So I want to talk about public opinion a little bit on this, just because I, I noticed someone had tweeted and love it. You just you had interviewed Josh Green about that Bannon book, and Bannon in that book says uh, when it was one of the, they were talking about how you know Hillary gave that speech condemning Trump's ties to white supremacy, white nationalism, ban and all the rest. And they had asked Bannon about that. And he said, well, you know, we tested the race stuff. It doesn't it doesn't move anyone who wasn't already in her. Cool, camp. Steve. Brag about that. Well, and I think that the, the, the hard thing that we have to confront, too, is that this may not dent Trump's approval. Right. This may all the people who are with him might still be with him. All the people who are not with him might not be with him. Or maybe it does. Maybe it does around the edges. But this is one of those things where. It may not be the, like, politically smart thing to talk about this all the time, but this is one of those moments where it's like, I don't fucking care. I don't care. Don't, this isn't like, a, what do we do with the Democratic Party? Yeah. Should we not talk? Like, no, 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 no. This is way bigger than that. Literal Nazis and Klansmen <laughs> in the street, and they're like, well, you Democrats are always playing identity politics. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Well, the, not Wall, Wall, the Wall Street Journal editorial today used this as an opportunity to stick up for the Google guy and a complaint about Black Lives well, Matter. That's, that's that, the Wall you know, Street Journal I, editorial. This is actually one point that I was, I was thinking about over the weekend, too, which I was getting so angry about, especially at the beginning. And, I, and this trailed off, but at the beginning, there were so many people saying, I support free speech, but there's no excuse for da 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 Like, I'm sorry. I don't understand why you feel the need to defend free speech in this moment. We all support free speech, but like... And, and th- this weekend was also just a bigger reminder to me about something important that I think I forget this sometimes just because, you know, there's so much coverage of all the different ways in which, you know, you have safe spaces and these endless right. debates. The greatest threat to free speech in this country is violent racist. It has been true for the entirety of our history. Yeah. Free speech is threatened by violence. It is threatened by violent white nationalists. Yeah. So if you say, you know, you care about free speech, it is about speaking out against this and and uh, it has absolutely nothing. Google firing a guy for writing a dumb, anti-intellectual, anti-woman memo has absolutely nothing to do with this. The idea that that guy shouldn't have been fired because it's some assault on free speech is such childish nonsense. I do think it's important to separate these things out. Right? <laughs> this isn't some Breitbart idiot who is monetizing being provocative, getting you know chased away at Berkeley. This is a Nazi or Klan-based group who are beating people with sticks who are armed to the teeth are rallying around a racist statue. That's not a free speech issue. That is like a mob, including one who committed a terrorist act, assaulting a community. And, you know, I feel like to me, the image I will always remember from this weekend was the group of torch-wielding people standing around the um, the group of UVA students who were just protesting peacefully. Yeah. Because that was like the most, one of the most inspiring things I'd seen because... The campus was closed. The kids aren't back yet. And, you know, these are just kids. And, you know, DeRay talked to some of those student leaders and they're so amazing and they were so inspiring and they cared so much. And then you see these just villains, just vicious racists who many from out of town, many from the community, just surrounding them and terrifying them. And it just felt like history repeating. And the other thing to remember just in all of this is that there were such good people who came out to fight back. And, you know, they're not going anywhere either. Yeah. Yeah. Um... If you go on IndivisibleGuide.com, they're holding a stand in solidarity with Charlottesville rallies and marches all over the country. And it's great to see the map of the country and see all the different cities, hundreds and hundreds of cities, thousands of people who uh, are holding these events to stand in solidarity with Charlottesville. Uh, you can put in your zip code and find something near you. 
When we come back, we're going to talk to DeRay. He just did a, a bonus pod where he talked to Governor McAuliffe, and he also talked to some of the students that Lovett was just talking about. So we're going to talk to DeRay about this in just a bit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out... Because that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod with us today, the host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, thanks for joining us today. Always good to be here. So you recorded a bonus pod yesterday with uh, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, as well as some of the student organizers from UVA. What did you learn from those interviews? Yeah, so it's always great to talk to people on the ground. I remember what it was like to be in Ferguson for the initial wave of the protests and know what it's like to be in so many other cities. And the way the mainstream media covers things is often uh, not so helpful with regard to the protesters. I didn't. One of the things that's still as shocking is I didn't know that there were like stockpiles of weapons around the city. Like that is sort of fascinating to me. I heard um, you say that. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? And then, and then when Governor McAuliffe sort of essentially said that the reason the police didn't intervene is that the white supremacists were so heavily armed, like that is, you know, I got tear gas and pepper sprayed and arrested for for doing significantly less than um, the white supremacists in Charlotte and me and so many other people. So that was sort of fascinating. What was what was incredible, though, was to hear the resolve of the organizers and the, just the skill and the way they understood the complexity of the problem is something that uh, is still really important to me and to so many other people. 
Direct, watching this unfold yesterday, I mean, these Nazis, these Klansmen were so well armed. They were so willing to use violence. If you're a counter protester, what is the appropriate way to approach a situation like this? Because I'm sure there are millions of people that want to speak out and say that this is not welcome in our country. This is not First Amendment right. This is hate and evil. But like, how should people do that in a way that's safe and effective in your view? You know, I'm mindful that the context of protests is just different, right? So, like, it, being in St. Louis County, where Ferguson is, was just, like, a different landscape than being in Baltimore, a city of row houses, right? Like, I remember when when the police shot tear gas or smoke bombs, really, in, in Baltimore, not really tear gas, in a block where, like, there's no alley. Like, mm-hmm. that was just a different organizing tactic than being in a place like Ferguson. So, that's the first thing, is that the context really matters, so... So, like, looking at what space and stuff looks like in the city where you are is really important. The second is that, like, showing up is half the battle. Is that, like, what was really powerful about Char- Charlottesville is that so many people came out on on the side of justice, right? There were just so many people who physically showed up to create a physical barrier to to the white supremacists. None of us had anticipated that there would be somebody who would run through a crowd. So, like, when you think about how to organize, there are things now that organizers are talking about that we can do differently in the future, but that just hasn't happened in in that way before. So that's just like a hard experience. It, otherwise, uh, it was a relatively, it, you know, wasn't as wild as it could have been given the sheer amount of weapons that were out there. We did see DeAndre Harris, who, who was a kid that got uh, assaulted by the white supremacists. And then we obviously saw those people that got hit by the guy in the car. Mm-hmm. But the single biggest thing is like to show up and and wherever you are, there are skilled organizers who can help figure out like what the context looks like and what that dictates. But coming outside and being present, it's a huge deal, especially because the police is with white people specifically just respond to white people differently. I remember being in Ferguson and like this one police officer, like literally like walked this white older woman over to arrest her. Like he just like gently walked her. Whereas like black people are getting like beat down and like kicked, you know, and like they're getting dragged across the street. And this woman, he like grabs her wrist and just like walks her across the street. And like white people can use their bodies uh, in ways that we know the police will just respond differently to. So DeRay, you know, you did this incredible conversation with two of the students that were on the ground. And I, first of all, I just think everybody should listen to it because they were inspiring and so smart and caring and brave about how they approached this protest. But what did you take away specifically from them, from their experience? Like, what, what were you surprised about from what they told you? Yeah, I don't know if I was surprised so much as, um, you know, I, I, what did you guys take away from? I feel like I, I talk to organizers all the time. So I don't know if I'm so much surprised so much by the organizing community. I'm always in awe of how skilled so many people are at such a young age like i'm just like proud and i think it's incredible um what did you guys take away from it there were two moments in the conversation that really stuck with me one was when i'm sorry if i don't don't remember which person was speaking but they were describing the experience of being at the protest and, and seeing these people with torches and both feeling scared and feeling in the moment and worried about their friends and just observing this, but at the same time aware that they were doing the right thing, that they were where they were supposed to be, that this was sort of where they were supposed to be in the struggle. And I found that really moving and inspiring to hear you know, that they were very aware of how important it is that they were there and how, how important it was to them to be there. And, and then the second piece of it was just how conscientious these students were about the entirety of what was going on, about the police response, the threat, uh, not just the threat to the entire community, police and and, and counter-protesters and the community at large by these violent extremists and their sort of nuanced take on what McAuliffe was doing. I mean, these were 
these are students, they're young people, but they were as mature and aware and as smart as any people that you can hear talk about this subject. Yeah, what really what really stuck out at me is when Devin Willis said to you when he was uh, looking at all these torches coming at him, saying, you know, am I doing this right? Is this what Dr. King would have done? It was pretty powerful, and to have that awareness and sort of that consciousness about the connection to history was, was pretty inspiring. And it's a reminder, too, that, that, like, young people who are on the streets know what they're doing, you know? Right. Like, there's this image that's, like, these kids just, like, walk out into the street. And, and it's like, no, people are, like, really thoughtful, really organized. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I had Terry McAuliffe on, the governor of Virginia, on the second time to, you know, just help us understand from, from the state's perspective. But, uh, but to have, like, real organizers who are there, who were there, who saw the trauma, who are still trying to figure out what to do, who have to live in community help us like process it because that's often the voice that you only hear for two seconds on the news and like you never hear again you know right yeah and and by the way they also just made the larger point of where this protest and counter protest sits in the larger set of issues confronting charlottesville virginia the country that this was not a, a one-off that the, that the ways in which this protest was outside of of normal but also spoke to some some deeper issues i mean they were just so conscientious about why they were there some of you, two of you have been speechwriters and all of you have worked in PR. What did you make of the, the political statements that came out in the aftermath of uh, the violence of the white supremacists in Charlottesville? Yeah, I mean, we're, we've been talking about this today. And I mean, the Trump thing is separate and awful. And, you know, like we said, the, the very least you can do as a politician, the least you can do is to condemn white supremacists and didn't he just do it though i think he literally just did he it. just did it yeah no he did it okay. while we were recording yeah with so, teeth but the fact that that was not his instinct that was not his advisor's instinct when he was asked after the statement do you condemn white nationalists he saw the question he heard the question he chose not to answer it it says something very dark about him and look you just i mean i'm i'm used to whether it's a president i agree with or not when something like this happens, when a tragedy happens, when violence happens, the president of the United States stands up and he says something unifying. And he says something to try to bring the country together. And, you know, Republican presidents have done that, even though I think a lot of them, you know, I disagree with a lot of them, and a lot of them have given uh, winks and nods to racism. And yet, at a moment like this, you expect a leader to stand up and do this. And the fact that he didn't, you know, it's not surprising, but it's still shocking. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, it was it's interesting to see people be like, you know, thank God Trump spoke out. You're like, let's be clear that everything Trump has done has been bad for people. You know, like he's not that this statement does, is not in line at all with his actions. Um, you know, I think Kamala Harris is. Did you see Kamala Harris's statement? Yeah. You know, she was right on where she's like, you know, you can't condemn something on Saturday and then vote vote on Monday in a way that actually disadvantages these communities in, in similar ways, right? That like, that doesn't actually work. So, um, so I thought that that was real, you know, on, on pod save the people tomorrow, we sort of do a history lesson a little bit around some of the monuments so that people can like have a little more context about sort of why, why the statues and why these symbols and the iconography of hate become a target for the white supremacists. You know, I've tweeted before. I don't know if I've, we, we haven't talked about it is I went to college with the guy who now runs Richard Spencer's think tank, which is like still crazy to me. Yeah. I saw Um, you tweeting with him, but like that is a reminder to me that like, these are people we know, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I asked this question earlier, but how do we remember this going forward? I, I worry that sometimes the focus on the statements, is he going to say the right thing? Did he take too long? So now he's made this like very delayed condemnation of this. And then, you know, if there's not another violent protests like this uh, where white supremacists descend in a town in a couple weeks, whatever, then we all sort of forget about it. And the focus on the statements and the action sort of takes away the focus on the larger institutional racism that we're still grappling with as a country. How do we how do we remember this? How do we not let this just sort of fade away like another news cycle? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. I think in, in these moments, I'm always... The thing is an organizer that I'm trying to think through is like, how do we make sure that we prioritize the structural change that needs to happen? Mm-hmm. That I, I believe that the reason that white supremacists are mobilizing so boldly and so openly is that they understand that they may lose this time, right? That we uh, on the right side of justice can organize and that we can figure out how to actually change the system once and for all in a way that really uh, advantages equity. Now, I say that they may lose because I know that progress isn't inevitable, right? That like it will actually take people doing real tough work that the arc of justice may bend, but it only bends because people bend it, mm-hmm. not because it just like naturally bends. So, I, you know, I've seen incredible work happening at the, at the national level around like ending mass incarceration and equity and so things like that. So I think we need to continue to imagine and we have to make sure that we fight to push back on the stuff that this administration is doing because what the Republicans have figured out how to do is that they play not only the long game, but they play the long, long game, right? That like that Trump is doing things that it'll take us two generations to try and figure out how to undo if we're not really thoughtful about monitoring it. And like, that's the stuff that we have to figure out. What does it mean that every governor elected in 18 will be the governor that signs the redistricting plans, right? Like that, these are the things that like aren't very sexy, but will have a huge impact on the way that people interact with democracy in the long term. And I think that the right gets that. Yeah. So one of the things that I've sort of struck by in all this is you see some Republicans go further than Trump and denouncing uh, white supremacist is denouncing the KKK, denouncing uh, Nazis in our streets, which, which, as John has been saying, is sort of the least they can do. What would you push these Republicans to do to address some of the rot inside the party? Because even as they denounce these sort of publicly fringe elements, there is still, you know, there is still systemic injustice. There are still still policy difference that seem to flow from this desire to kind of appease white grievance. Like, what would you want these people to do as a next step to prove that they mean what they say? Yeah, there are a host of things. I think about the Department of Justice is Congress can force uh, sessions to to stop prosecuting at the highest possible level, which was a decision that he made and overturned the Obama administration's decision to to not necessarily prosecute people with the highest possible consequence. Uh, you know, at the Department of Education, Betsy DeVos has essentially, I don't know if you saw, we didn't cover this on Pod Save the People last week because there, were other, there was other news we talked about, but she's essentially cleared the backlog of civil rights complaints and dismissed the vast majority of them. It's things like that that actually harm people in communities. Uh, And I think Congress can step in. I think about, uh, you know, too bad they already put Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. But that is I think that that is something that we will be dealing with for a generation or two. Um, I think there are a host of criminal justice reforms that can happen that can happen. Right. That like the end of civil asset forfeiture at the the legislative level, requiring police departments to report uh, use of force and uh, police killings like changing the disparities in sentencing, uh, removing marijuana as on like changing it on the schedule, right? Like so many things we know, these are common sense things that can happen at the federal level that there doesn't seem to be the political will 
to do right now, but there could be. Duray, thanks for joining us today. And uh, everyone go listen to the bonus pod on Pod Save the People because it's, uh, it's a conversation that, uh, that you all need to hear, that we all need to hear. So thanks, Duray. Thanks for coming cool. on. Thanks, Duray. Thanks, Duray. All right, man. Take Talk care. You later. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod today with us in studio, Julissa Arce, the chairman and co-founder of Ascend Educational Fund, which provides mentorship and scholarships for immigrant children in New York City, regardless of their ethnicity or immigration status. You're also the author of My Underground American Dream. Julissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have a pretty extraordinary story. How did you become an immigrant rights activist? Well, I was undocumented for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then and then I became an American citizen because I, was, I got married to my boyfriend. And once I became an American citizen, I realized how many young people were still going through what I was going through, which mean, which was like being in the shadows and being scared and not having the opportunities that other people our age were having, like just even like having a driver's license or going to college or being able to have a drink with your friends without being scared that like you didn't have an ID to show how old you really were. So that's when I decided that I needed to share my story and hopefully through sharing my story, really show people who undocumented immigrants are, why we come here. Like, we're not here to replace you. We're not here to take your jobs. We're not here to bring drugs and everything else that, you, that you're hearing today. And you were working at the time, you were on Wall Street, you were... Yeah, so I worked at at Goldman Sachs, um, and I was there for about six years. I was the vice president there and then went to go work at Merrill Lynch. And, you know, I think that that's I never I never had to worry about ICE coming and raiding the Goldman Sachs trading floor. Right? Because when people think about undocumented yeah. immigrants, they don't think someone who's working on, on Wall Street. And so that that in a way gave me like a really good cover mm-hmm. for nobody really thinking that I was undocumented. But I was undocumented. And so I still was dealing with sort of the same feelings and anxiety about being undocumented. So one of the things you were advocating there was for the rights of immigrants to attend California colleges. One of the things you're here to talk to about today is DACA, which is Deferred Action for Children. Why is that so important? What happens when these kids apply to college? Yeah. So if I can just take a step back and mm. just like say what DACA is, because I think like yeah. we are sometimes so insular and we think that everybody knows what DACA is, right? And the truth is that like most people don't know what DACA is. Even people within 
the immigrants' right movement and especially within the progressive movement. Like, there's a lot of progressives who are still not behind this issue as they are with, like, healthcare and women's rights and, yeah. and, and all the other issues that we're fighting for. So DACA is it's a program that allows young undocumented people to be able to work, and it's supposed to protect them from deportation. And that's all it is. It's not a path to citizenship. It's not amnesty. It's, it's just those two things. You get a work permit. And you don't have to be afraid to get deported. Right. And in order to get it, you have to go through like very extensive background checks and fingerprinting and provide all sorts of information to the government. So people like the government knows who you are. Right. And you and these people, 800,000 of them came out of the shadows, provided all this information on the good faith that they would be able to work and that this information wouldn't be used against them to be deported. Right. And now we are here. Now, here we are on the Trump days. And what's happening is that Texas sent a letter to uh, Jeff Sessions and said, if you don't end DACA by September 5th, which is just around the corner, then we will sue you and we will try to terminate DACA through the court system. And that's a really big threat because, like, we all know that the Justice Department under Jeff Sessions is not going to they're not going to spend any resources on protecting DACA, right? No. And what we have is 800,000 people who have lives, who have been here, some of them since they were two years old. I got here when I was 11, that are now working and they're going to school and they have bought homes and they have bought cars. And to think that the program can just end and from one day to the next, You know, all these people are going to lose their jobs because they can't work legally anymore. How are they supposed to pay their mortgages and how are they supposed to pay their car payments and continue to support themselves? So not only is it bad for these young people whose lives are being threatened, uh, but it's also bad for our economy. And it's it's bad for our small businesses that are employing these people that all of a sudden aren't going to have they're going to have to replace, you know, hundreds and thousands of people from one day to the next. So um, that's what's going on. And, you know. Beyond just, you know, I, I through the scholarship fund, I get to meet a lot of these these young people um, through my work, and it's really crushing to know, especially because I know what it feels like, <laughs> to know that like day to day from now until September fifth, like we're on the edge of our seed, waiting to see what happens, and so we really need every progressive like if even if you this is the first time you've heard about DACA and what's going on, like we need you to take action, and we need you to like call your senator and tell them to support the DREAM Act, which would be a permanent legislative solution because DACA is not that. Right. And we um, don't have to worry about the court cases if right, we have a exactly. You wrote an op-ed for the Huffington Post, and, and you know you have a financial services background. You made a really strong economic argument, which is a study by the Center for American Progress found that ending DACA would reduce our GDP by $433 billion over the next decade. Do you find that that economic argument is one that allows you to reach people that might otherwise not be uh, supportive of this issue? Yeah, I think some people, you know, I think one, one of the biggest concerns about immigrants to the country, whether legal or um, or illegal immigration into the country, is that we're draining the system, mm-hmm. right? That we are taking more than, than what we are giving. And that is false, and it's been proven by dozens and dozens of studies, right? I think the problem is that there are people who are kind of on the edge and giving them this kind of economic information will will bring them to our side and mm-hmm. say, like, okay, I can be supportive of this issue. The other side of it, though, is that, you know, you can give people the facts and and they can still shout at you like lies, 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 even though you're providing them with like factual information about right. this. Um, so I do think it helps with some people and other people, like, 
that's not the way to like lead the conversation. Mm-hmm. But those are the facts, right? Mm-hmm. The fact is that DACA recipients are good for the economy. They are they have better paying jobs and therefore can pay more taxes, mm-hmm. they can spend more money, they can create more economic activity. So this is good for the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, ask a, just a broader question of like when you hear the the language and the tone of the conversation coming out of the White House and this administration about immigration, about immigrants, how does that impact the people you you speak to who are who are listening? How does it feel for people who hear President Trump talk about immigrants as rapists or murderers or drug dealers? Yeah. I mean, that's how this president announces candidacy, right, was by calling Mexicans rapists and and, uh, Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. And some he assumes are good people, Um, which, by the way, they like I always laugh about this um, because Ivanka Trump actually tweeted about my story. Um, And and she said, you know, uh, we love this story of this undocumented person like a couple of months before Trump announced his presidency. And so now I'm like, what? Like, and now here we are, you know, six months into him being president and the chants in Charlottesville were also, you won't replace us and immigration, right? right? Like you will not replace us, yeah. like get out of our country. So it sort of just makes you feel very unwelcome, but very unwanted in this country. Um, and, you know, for me, especially living in California, I'm sort of like, this was my land <laughs> like yeah. this was mexico before it became the united states and 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 the reason we have a country is because immigrants like you know probably some of the people that were marching in charlottesville were probably maybe their parents their ancestors great grandparents came on the mayflower but like the majority of them are here because of immigrants right. because of immigration right, right? and so it's difficult sometimes i mean i get attacks on twitter all the time um about you know you illegal immigrant, we should deport you. And I'm like, um, I'm an American citizen. You can't deport me anymore. Um, but it's just something we have to deal with all the time. Um, it's sort of like having to justify the very air that you breathe. You just mentioned Charlottesville. One of the main organizers of the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville over the weekend was someone who's also been fighting against the city's status as a sanctuary city. How do you respond to the kind of hate we saw this weekend? And do you see... I keep thinking that these white supremacists, sometimes they want to divide like Black Lives Matters and immigrants' rights activists and Jewish people. And, you know, do, do you see a need for sort of solidarity between people to, to fight this? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I was, I was at, in, at this, um, on this panel recently, and one of the commentators on the panel was like, immigrants hate black people. And I was like, what? Like, no, that's and he was trying to make an argument, basically pinning the Hispanic community versus the black community. Right. And the immigrant community versus the black community. And we've seen this from President Trump, too. Right. Which is like the hardest hit people are like African-Americans and communities of color. And so it does create this division when in reality, we should realize that so many of the issues that we're fighting for are so interrelated, right? The prison, um, the jail where Sandra Bland died has just been uh, approved to hold immigrants, Hmm. right? So like these things are are related. Like when you think about um, some of the immigrants that do have, let's say, uh, a criminal conviction for like having pot or smoking pot, right? Mm -hmm. Like we see how much communities of color get policed so much more and they get sentenced 
like at higher rates and they get thrown in jail more often than than white people do for committing the same crimes. And so then you you take that and you say, well, now these people now have a criminal conviction. So now they are even more targets of deportation. Right. So all of this is related and we should be coming together and recognizing that this white supremacist nationalist agenda is very much rooted in, yes, racism, but it's also really incredibly rooted in an anti-immigrant sentiment. Right. And it affects all of us. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, you look at, there is a direct connection between President Trump refusing to denounce white nationalists, Fox News inciting anti-immigrant sentiment, and the chance being shouted on the streets of Charlottesville. I mean, you just sort of see that every day. So maybe there's one, there's at least people can see that these things are are sort of connected to, to each other. Yeah, I hope they do. Yeah. You mentioned asking people to call their senators and representatives. What else can listeners t- do to help protect the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program? I know there's also a day of action mm-hmm. tomorrow, Tuesday, right? Yeah. So, and listen, like the, in, within the immigrant rights movement, we're trying to find like a bunch of different fights, right? Right. Like detention centers and uh, immigration rates. Um, so what I'm about to say is it's not to take away from any of the other fights, but the very immediate fight mm-hmm. that we have in front of us because of this pending Texas lawsuit on September 5th is protecting DACA and making sure that this 800,000 people don't lose their their livelihoods, mm-hmm. right? And so tomorrow, August 15th, there is a nationwide data action to support and defend DACA. So listeners can go to defenddaca.com okay. um, where they can find different rallies, which I'm sure are going to be, you know, hopefully we can sort of create some synergies between the the anti-Charlesville protest mm-hmm. and, and what's happening with DACA and we mm-hmm. can sort of have a louder voice around it. But one of the things that, that so they can, they can check out the website, um, attend one of the rallies tomorrow, tweet with the hashtag DefendDACA to show mm-hmm. your support tomorrow. And again, like the number one thing you can do is to call your senator and tell them to get on the DREAM Act. The first time the DREAM Act was introduced was in 2001, which is when I started going to college. Wow. And I had such high hopes that the Dream Act would pass. And like in my mind, I was like, for sure, by the time I graduate in four years, like this will be the law and I'll be able to like work. And this is why I had to write a whole book about it because like there was so much, so much that I had to go through and so much that I couldn't contribute because this never passed. And now we're 16 years later and imagine like how many people have had to suffer and we can do something about it. Like we can all pick up the phone and call our senators and tell them to support the DREAM Act. When you hear this language, I mean, you talk about this timeline from 2001 until today. And, you and you know, when I hear the rhetoric out of the Trump administration currently this minute or, you know, that Tucker Carlson interview you did, which I think, you know, embodies the tone you hear from Fox News about immigrants all the time. Do you think that the politics have gotten worse or more difficult or is this a more vocal minority that has just gotten more caustic? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, having been undocumented, I can tell you that, like, I've, we, you know, we've been waiting for 20 years for there to be some sort of relief for immigrants, right? Um, and it hasn't happened. And, and you know, I always think back to the last time the DREAM Act was introduced, and it failed because five Democrats voted against it. Yeah. Right? There were three Republicans that voted for it who probably committed career suicide. Mm-hmm. And then five Democrats who voted against it. So, you know, I think, I do think that this is beyond sort of Democrat and Republican um, mm-hmm. because we've been, we've, 
we failed the we failed these people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. I do think that what's happening now, though, it's become acceptable to say this anti-immigrant things, right? I mean, I just think back, like, people used to have to wear hoods and cover their faces to be able to say the things they said this weekend. And now they're, like, marching emboldened and empowered without covering their faces because we have a precedent that is saying it's okay for you to do that, right? And I think the biggest thing is, like, when I was like tweeting out telling people like I don't I don't want to replace you you know like I, my mom didn't bring me here and said like okay you know you're gonna go to sixth grade and take the spot of a white kid in your school like uh, that you know like <laughs> yeah, that the conversation like, doesn't happen it doesn't happen you know you're you're told you're coming to this amazing country that you're willing to risk your life to come here because of the opportunities it provides you and my mom always used to think of the U.S. as like going to a strange like a friend's house where you have to be like on your best behavior and you have to bring Mm -hmm. you have to bring something to like share with people and that's you know that's how i've always thought of this country like no one's here to replace you like white people stop worrying also the united states i'm not here to replace you we need immigration to grow our economy at the rate we want to do countless jobs that are being created every day i mean the united states needs immigrants in this country to be as strong as we want it to be period and the other thing is like so like the the race act right which was like gonna cut immigration by half like legal immigration by half literally the only promise of the race act to the american people is more minimum wage jobs right like that is a promise of the race act is saying we're going to bring in like really really smart people so that and and we're not going to let low-skilled immigrants come into the country anymore so that you can have those jobs but like really you know, do we really want those jobs? Like, do we want to be out in the fields picking strawberries and gardening and like in hot kitchens and restaurants? Like, do we really need more of those jobs? Is that what's is that what a person who's struggling in Ohio do they really need a minimum wage job? Like, no, they don't. They need skills to be able to take better paying jobs, right? And by the way, like if Republicans at least supported a $15 minimum wage, then maybe those jobs would be better. But six, seven dollars an hour, like that's not going to make your life better. And like we should be demanding other things. And that's the thing about immigration is that it's really easy to blame immigrants for Mm -hmm. all the stuff that is wrong in our country. Like you don't have a job because immigrants. Throughout centuries of history. Yeah, exactly. Turned to. Julissa, thank you so much for joining us, and please let us know if we can do anything to help. Thank you for the work you're doing, and um, everyone go to defenddaca.com and uh, participate if you can in the Day of Action tomorrow, and remember to call your senators and representatives about this. I just like, there is a connection between what's happening in Charlottesville and what's happening with DACA, because all this white nationalism, all this anti-immigrant sentiment, who is it going to come down on? It's going to come down on children who came here, who only know this country, and All of this, all of this noise and anger and hate is about making people forget that these are just kids that don't know another place. Exactly. So it's like if you if you've been watching Charlottesville and you don't know what to do, you can do this. Like this is connected. It is part of it. All of it leads back to for some ungodly reason, a decision to try to punish these children to score some kind of political victory. Yeah, exactly. Julissa, thank you for coming. Thank you you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks again to our guests today, Duray McKesson and Julissa Arce. Appreciate them joining, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Very lighthearted episode today. Lighthearted.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.